Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you, the saints here at Westminster, those from Christchurch that have made the trip down here today. And this morning, we are going to begin what, Lord willing, for Christchurch will be a five-week sermon series, a five-week look at the book of Lamentations. We've already had a few prefatory sermons looking at Jeremiah and the lead-up to all the lamenting that we will be doing. And I want to preface this sermon with something that I've already told the congregation at Christ Church before, so they'll hear it again. But I want to preface this by saying some of this will, in fact, be very dark. You just heard the chapter read. It's hard to preach Lamentations 1 without bringing some darkness. And it's not always fitting to try to jam, to try to force feed the good news of the gospel again and again into every single text of Scripture. Doing so comes across as ham-fisted or disingenuous. Sometimes scripture, oftentimes scripture, demands that we sit, that we dwell, that we marinate in suffering. So I make no promises that you are going to walk away each week or from this particular sermon feeling relief or optimism or any joy. But what I do promise is that you are going to hear the word of God And I trust that that is sufficient, all sufficient indeed. So let's dive in. Lamentations. Lamentations. There was originally no title given to this text. But the title that we have now, Lamentations, it comes from the first two words of the original Hebrew text. The first two words of Lamentations 1. Lamentations 1.1 starts off with this characteristic Classic lament. It starts off, ah, how? Or, oh, how? It starts off, oi, vey. A deep lament. And hence, from those two words, we get the title that we have now, Lamentations. In the Jewish tradition, this book, Lamentations, was read each July. And it was read as part of their yearly liturgy. And it was read in July because that's when they would commemorate the destruction of the temple. And they would commemorate this moment of national tragedy. The greatest moment in Israel's history of national tragedy to that point. They would commemorate it in the language that is most capable of sort of capturing the deep substructures of human emotion. That's to say they used poetry. They use poetry because poetry is the form that we have that best encapsulates the deep substructures of human emotion. I want to give you my quick elevator pitch for poetry here. My church has heard it before, so they'll hear it again. If you do not enjoy poetry, it is a deficiency in you. It is. And that's okay because grace can heal nature. It is a deficiency if you do not like poetry. And I'll give you a reason why. The great 20th century philosopher, maybe the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, although quite a horrid human being, Martin Heidegger. Heidegger said that prose is just broken poetry. Our normal way of speaking, that's broken poetry. Now, if that doesn't sell it for you, how about C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis, you might revere a little bit more than you revere Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, he has Aslan singing in poetry the universe into being. Many of the ancient Jewish scribes, that's the way that they read the Genesis account. 
that God sings, he hymns through poetry, the universe into existence. Poetry is beloved by God. Man, the first man, Adam, in his pre-lapsarian, his pre-sin state, before he has fallen, Adam is a poet. The first time he sees his wife, the first time he sees his bride on his wedding day, the first words that we hear man speak, he breaks into poetry. At long last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Pre-sin Adam is a poet. And the greater Adam, Christ, in his moment of greatest suffering on the cross, what does he do? He recites poetry. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hannah, in her moments of triumph and joy at the birth of her son Samuel, the great Samuel, she births forth into beautiful poetry. Mary, in her Magnificat, becomes Israel's poet laureate. My soul magnifies the Lord. The Bible is jam-packed with poetry because God loves poetry. Right in the middle of your Bible, there are 150 psalms, all poetry. The book of Proverbs, all poetry. The book of Ecclesiastes, all poetry. The book of Lamentations, all poetry. 42 chapters of Job, all poetry. The Song of Solomon, poetry. Much of the apocalyptic literature, meaning the apocalyptic prophets, Zechariah, Malachi, the book of Revelation, much of that takes the poetic form. What book in the New Testament is quoted the most from the Old Testament? The book of Psalms. So the poetry of the Old Testament becomes the poetry of the New Testament. When Jesus speaks, he speaks in a poetic fashion often, in parables. By almost any measure, some 40% of all of the words in Scripture are poetry. God loves poetry. So if you don't, there's something wrong with you. And the poetry we have before us today... It's not just any kind of poetry. This is a special kind of poetry. This is dirge poetry. This is funeral poetry. Often, poetry of dark sadness. Funeral poetry, it can provide a sort of dark brightness or a sad joy. It can provide healing in the midst of sorrow. Poetry at funerals can provide, at the very least, catharsis, as does one of my favorite funeral poems of all time. It's also just in general one of my favorite poems. Certainly my favorite dirge. And I'm speaking of the incredible poem written by W.H. Auden called In Memory of W.B. Yeats. If you've never read In Memory of W.B. Yeats, go home this afternoon. You could do much worse than sitting and reading Auden's In Memory of W.B. Yeats. Yeats was the beautiful Irish poet who deeply shaped much of Auden's poetic imagination. And upon his death, Auden wrote this poem. Now, as one might expect in a poem titled In Memory of W.B. Yeats, there's a lot of sorrow in the poem, a lot of lament. And after much sadness in the beginning of the poem, even Auden at one point bemoaning the meaninglessness of poetry, saying, for poetry makes nothing happen. Now, that's a sad thing for a poet to say. You're sitting there, you've spent your life, you've dedicated your life to the craft of poetry, and in your poem you say, for poetry makes nothing happen. After all, Yeats wrote beautiful poetry for years, and he bequeathed it to his homeland. And Ireland was still a mess. The Irish winter was still rough. The wind still howled. The rivers still froze. Politicians were still corrupt. 
War still moaned on in the background, humming around the background of our lives, mowing down innocence in the blood-dimmed tide of our rebellion against God and his good ways. I mean, what can poetry do? Poetry makes nothing happen. Well, after all that sadness, the end of the poem, it starts to sort of gallop and flow into these beautiful little rhyming couplets. Auden writes, and I encourage you to just let the words be heard here, take in the beauty before trying to decipher any meaning. This is how Auden ends that poem. He writes, follow poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. One more time. Follow poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. In the end, it seems that Auden sees that poetry... Can indeed do something. Maybe poetry could do almost everything. Sure, poetry can't change the Irish weather, but it can, with its unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. I mean, persuading us to rejoice in a world where it's so easy to fall into the pits of sorrow, into depression, into melancholy. Persuading somebody to to rejoice, that's a pretty big deal. Can poetry persuade us to rejoice? Can dirge, can funeral poetry persuade us to rejoice? Poetry can, with the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Through the work of beautiful poetry, through the farming of a verse... Can the curse be turned into a vineyard? Can poetry farm and cultivate sadness and give us instead something that can produce wine? And if wine, revelry. And if revelry, maybe even joy. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Auden seems to conclude that poetry can, in the prison of our days, teach the free man how to praise. And what could be more worth doing than in this, the prison of our days, being taught how to praise? Can poetry do that? Auden seems to think so. And I'm inclined to believe him. And I think that little litany that I just ran through of the Bible and its view of poetry, I think God thinks it can do the same thing. I think the Bible would second my motion that in the prison of our days... That indeed, biblical poetry might be able to teach us how to praise. So dirge poetry can be cathartic. It can be healing. It can, it even might be necessary. It might be essential to what it means to be human. So Lamentations, it's five chapters. 
And each chapter is an individual standalone poem. It's a poem of lament. The first four poems, one through four, they're all acrostics, with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet forming the structure of the poems. That's why poems, if you look in your Bible, poems one, two, and four, they're all exactly 22 verses long. Each verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And you might be saying, well, what about Lamentations 3? Well, Lamentations 3 is 66 verses long. And you don't need to be a math genius there. to be like, all right, the 22 is an acrostic for the Hebrew alphabet. And the third one is 66 verses. That's because we have three cycles of the 22 letters repeating themselves. So these poems, they are intricately formal poems in which we will get suffering from A to Z. We will get the entire gamut of human emotions. And I think that structure is really important to understand because when you're dealing with the content of these poems, it's dark and it's sad and it feels like there is no hope. And yet the structure of the poem is telling you that indeed, in the midst of this suffering, there is order. There is control. This is all according to God's sovereign plan. So Lamentations, it gives us suffering from Alpha to Omega brought on by the Alpha and the Omega. And it's important to remember that. This suffering is brought on by God. God is fully sovereign. He's fully in control of all. And Israel here, she's not suffering in isolation. She's not suffering in isolation from the will of God. Their suffering was brought directly by the righteous hand of God. Now the author, who's the author? The author of Lamentations, it is hotly debated. Well, it's hotly debated in theological circles. You're very unlikely to turn on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and find a debate on who the author of Lamentations is. It would get very poor ratings, I imagine. But it is a hotly debated topic who indeed wrote these poems. And for a long period of time, the working assumption was that it was Jeremiah. Now, whether it's Jeremiah or not is of very little importance. What we do know for certain is that the author was one who had an eyewitness account of the destruction of Jerusalem. He was there. He saw it. And the catastrophe was felt, experienced, and shared by the entire city. So the identity of the individual author is not of great importance to us. Because these poems, they're not about the individual eye sufferings of one person. But they are about the communal suffering of the we. This is a communal lament. What we are witnessing here is national suffering, national lamenting. This is not like the book of Job with his individual eye sufferings. So it's a book with a deeply communal focus. Which makes it a book that's perpetually relevant to our sinful communities. This book couldn't be more germane, more relevant to this, our sinful nation. To a nation that won't even use the word sin anymore. So we open the poem with a lonely city. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city. We're made for community. Because we are made in the communal image of a triune God, a tri-personal God. And as we find out right away when we open our Bibles, it is not good for man to be alone. 
Loneliness is crushing. That's why even being misunderstood, not being around like-minded people, it can be so stunting and stifling because you can feel like you're alone even if you're in a crowded room. Loneliness is a great curse. And yet Jerusalem sits lonely. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. There's a world of heartache right there in those opening words. You can just imagine a crisp sheet of white paper with black ink in the middle that says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. And there's a poem right there. There's a deep poem right there. Jerusalem, she's depicted as a woman. She has loved and she has lost and lost greatly. She was full and now her cup has been poured out. And as one of my favorite modern artists sings in one of his songs, sings very tongue in cheek. He sings, supposedly there was a wise, wise man who says it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Never to have loved. Well, the person that's just loved and lost, well, they'll tell you what to do with that hallmark wisdom right there. And Jerusalem will tell you what to do with that hallmark wisdom right there. She has loved and she has lost. She is poured out. And even beyond simply being poured out, the vessel that she was has been shattered. If you recall back to Jeremiah 19, we just preached this last week at Christ Church. Jeremiah, the young prophet, he is called by God and he is told by God to go to the potter's house. And to go get a pot from the potter's house. And then he's going to take this pot and he's going to gather up the elders of Jerusalem. Gather up the elders of Judah and take them out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the valley of Gehenna, the valley of death. And he's going to stand amongst the elders and give a sermon amidst cremating bodies. And he's going to take a pot and shatter it to the ground in front of them. And look the elders in the eye and say, this is what's happening to Judah, to Jerusalem, because of you. You elders who are not proper shepherds of the sheep. God is going to shatter your people. So Israel, Judah, is not just poured out. She's been poured out and the vessel that she has been has been shattered. And she sits alone. And alone, she weeps. Verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. The poet, in verses 13 through 15, he gives us good reasons why she's weeping. Why her cheeks are stained with tears. Look with me if you would. Verses 13 through 15 of our text. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He's left me stunned. Faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. There is a sense here that the city does not just weep because of her incredible sufferings. And that would be reason enough to weep. But she weeps over what she has become. I mean, when the light of day shines on our wickedness and we see ourselves for what we truly are, that's tough stuff. Nobody wants to see that. That's why we keep the lights dim. 
That's why we turn the lights off. Well, what does Judah see? Judah sees that she was the beautiful, the beautiful virgin daughter of God. But she played the whore. And like the whore, she's been used up and she's left with no beloved. She was full of strong young sons who should have served in the army of the Lord. But they were not trained by their fathers. Remember, they had forgotten the law. Jeremiah had been sent on a tour of preaching revival to try to restore the law. But his words were not heeded. So God sent an army to crush Jerusalem's young men. And the poet says something along the lines of, Oh, Jerusalem, you were full of vibrant young childbearing women who did not raise those beautiful covenant children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But rather, you sacrificed those children to Moloch. And now your beauty has been stripped from you. And your men have been taken away from you. Taken away from you by the sword. And those that were not killed by the sword, they're dragged into exile. Verse 3. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Oh, how lonely lies that city. See, the earth is the Lord's. And should be full of gladness. If the very heavens declare the glory of God, which they do, how much more so should the people of God made in his very image, how much more so should Jerusalem be bursting with acclamations and shouts of praise? But when they had a voice to praise the Lord, they didn't use it for that purpose. They used it to call on other lovers. And now their throats have been ripped out. Oh, how lonely lies that city. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. See, true feasting is only found in the Lord. And those that reject that feast, those that choose to drink of the cup of the world, well, they will not drink of the cup of the vine on the judgment day. No one is coming to her festivals anymore. And it's only spiritual festivals that can remain festive. It's only spiritual festivals that actually inspire joy. Now, that's just not some Christianese pastor talk up here. That's not religious talk. It is only spiritual festivals that actually inspire joy. I mean, think of this. Even with the modern Western world's hatred for Christianity, even with their hatred for the things of God, Think about the difference between the way that we celebrate Easter and Christmas as opposed to the way we celebrate Earth Day. Only spiritual festivals inspire joy. Chesterton understood this, as he often did, and he understood it in a very Chestertonian way. Chesterton writes these words. Rationally, there appears no reason why we should not sing and give each other presents in honor of anything the birth of Michelangelo, or the opening of Houston Station. But it does not work. As a fact, men only become greedily and gloriously material about something spiritualistic. Take away the Nicene Creed and similar things, and you do some strange wrong to the seller of sausages. Take away the supernatural, and what remains 
is the unnatural. Take away the supernatural, and what is left is what is not natural. Israel forsook the supernatural beauty of God. They neglected and abandoned his festivals. They neglected his love. They neglected the supernatural, and what they are left with is the unnatural. Ah, how lonely lies that city. They were left with death, decay, and destruction. And as much as we try to take the sting out of these bitter things, death, decay, and destruction, we try to take the sting out of those with these idiotic euphemisms. In the faith of death and decay and destruction, you will hear people say these moronic things. If you go to funerals, you'll, you'll hear words like this spoken. Someone will stand up and say, well, death, it's a natural part of life, you know. That might be the dumbest statement ever made. Death is a natural part of life. Death is literally the opposite of life. It's the end of life, the destruction of life, the enemy of life. And God is life. So death is not natural. Abandon the supernatural and you get the unnatural. And we have gotten a whole bunch of unnatural in this culture. So the vibrant city is desolate. People are starving. Verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade the treasures for food to revive their strength. Did you catch the bitter irony of the ways of the world there? The bitter ironies of the ways of Jerusalem? They stored up for themselves treasures on earth. And now they trade their most valuable things for bread. They did not seek first the kingdom and simply pray for their daily bread. And now their basic bread has been stripped from them. In verse 19, we read, My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. The priesthood has failed. I mean, what should the priesthood have been doing? They should have been giving the people bread from heaven. They should have been acting in the role of persona Christi, in the role of Christ to the people. They should have been giving God to the people. But this wicked priesthood, they gave the culture to their people. And they lost all of their sheep. They gave the people the cultural moment. They gave the people what was hip. They gave the people Moloch. They gave the world to the people instead of Christ. And the people are left weeping on judgment day. Matthew 18, 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's what the priesthood has done here. The priesthood is wishing, they say, I wish right now I had a millstone around my neck and I was cast into the sea because I led all of these little ones away from God. How lonely lies that city. Verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. <coughs> yeah, now is the time for their tears. This first poem, Lamentations 1, it ends with Jerusalem realizing she deserves this. She deserves the wrath of God. And yet she cries out that God would avenge her Avenge her and bring punishment on her enemies. Verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. 
And then verse 20, she says, I have been very rebellious. The English poet John Donne, he summed up those two verses in a little verse of his own. He wrote, but yet the Lord is just and righteous still. I have rebelled against his will. But yet the Lord is just and righteous still. I have rebelled against his will. Jerusalem is aware that she deserves this suffering. And then she asks for judgment. These are the final two verses of Lamentations 1. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announce. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my transgressions. For my groans are many. My heart is faint. That's where it ends. And here she is left to wait. To wait to be avenged? Maybe. But who knows? Certainly she doesn't know. So... We might ask, is there any hope? Is there any hope in this opening poem? Well, frankly, not much. Maybe a smidge, a smidge in verse 12. Look at verse 12 if you have your Bible open. Verse 12 reads, Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which, has brought up, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Could this be a foreshadowing of the cross? After all, there was no sorrow like that sorrow. No sorrow like the Christ, the one anointed to suffer. O sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace. Verse 12 again. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? After all, it would seem like nothing to those passing by Golgotha 2,000 years ago. It would look like nothing. Just another criminal being executed by the Roman state. Ugly to look at, but nothing of note. How lonely hung the sun. The one forsaken by God. Forsaken for Jerusalem. Forsaken for you and me. Lo, here I fall my Savior. Tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor. Vouchsafe to me thy grace. Amen. Amen.